Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word together with you. Before we turn to His Word, let me go ahead and pray again briefly for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we turn to find such treasured things? We turn to you now, and we pray that you would open up the storehouses of your treasure to us, that we might understand, that we might be saved, that we might be grown in holiness and in love for you. We pray this in your spirit. Amen. Well, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 29. We're looking today specifically at verses 1 to 30. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on pages 23 and 24. And as always, I want to encourage you to turn to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it for us here in just a few moments. And I want to encourage you to keep the Bible open in front of you throughout our time because we're going to be looking often at the passage in our time together. Uh, One of the central themes of Genesis that we've been focusing on throughout our series is tracing the line of individuals through whom the promised Messiah would come. So if you think back to Genesis 3, verse 15, when God curses the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the woman will have an offspring, a child, and that child will crush the serpent. Now, the child doesn't come immediately, as one would hope or desire, right? Instead, what we find and what we meet is the line of individuals God chose as the ones through whom this child would come. So we saw how God chose Abraham. And then chose Abraham's son, Isaac. And then God chose Isaac's son, Jacob. Our last two sermons have been focused on God's choice of Jacob to be the one through whom this Messiah would come. But Genesis isn't only about tracing the line of people through whom the Messiah would eventually come. We also learn a great deal in Genesis about how God relates to and cares for his chosen people. So I want you to think back, me, back with me to God's dealings with Noah, for instance, where we learned that God will always remember his people. And the fact that he remembers his people uh, uh, teaches us that no matter how bad it gets, he will eventually come to our aid as he came to Noah's aid. Or think of Lot, where we learn that God shows his people unbelievable mercy to rescue us from certain judgment. Or think of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah where we learn that God provides for his people. Or last week with Jacob, we learned that God is with us and will keep us and will bring us to be with with him where he is. This week is similar to those weeks. There are a number of things that we can learn from the passage that we're about to read, but this week we learn a distinct lesson about how God relates to and cares for his people. And interestingly, we learn this lesson through a passage that doesn't even mention God once. And yet his sovereign hand 
is so clearly guiding it all. Uh, It's one of the more well-known or notorious passages in the book of Genesis because of the scandalous deception that occurs. Yet through that scandalous deception, God is going to teach us a very important lesson about his care for us. I want you to follow along as I read the passage for us now. This is God's word. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. And wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening... He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me 
another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. If you're taking notes, the main lesson we learn about how God relates to and cares for his people is that God sovereignly disciplines his children. God sovereignly disciplines his children. That is going to be our one main point of application today. What we're going to do now is walk through the text. I'm going to explain this passage as we go, and then we're going to spend time considering that one point of application, that God sovereignly disciplines his children. So let's go ahead and look at the text. In verse 1, we see that Jacob went on his journey. Uh, We just need to remember the context here, right? In chapter 27, Jacob deceived his father and in the process stole his brother Esau's blessing. Esau then started plotting to murder him, so his mom tells him to flee for his life by traveling to Haran and staying with her brother Laban. So Jacob fled for his life. In Genesis 28, God comes to him in a dream. He sees the staircase to heaven. God promises to be with him and keep him, and Jacob worships God. And now he's continuing on that journey to Haran. And verse 1 tells us he came to the people of the east. I think this is a subtle, ominous note. Uh, Because throughout Genesis, the east has been associated with evil and wickedness, perhaps signaling for us that things may not go so well for Jacob, right? Thus far in Genesis, the east has been associated with murderers like Cain, idolaters like the people of Babel, with wickedness, think of Sodom, which was in the east. So when we read the opening verse, we should think, "Uh uh-oh, Jacob is probably going to experience some trouble. And experience some trouble, he does. Just not at first. At first, it seems like everything is going great, right? He arrives in Haran. If you're looking at the first few verses, he comes to a well. He asks the shepherds who are gathered there if they know his uncle Laban, and they do. And as a matter of fact, they tell him, here comes Laban's daughter, Rachel, right now. Now look at verses 9 to 11. Rachel arrives at the well with her sheep. Jacob The young stallion that he is wants to impress her, right? So he removes the stone that was covering the well all by himself. I mean, what's so impressive about that, though? I want you to look back with me at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3. It says there, we get this interesting note, the stone that covered the well was large, so large that it normally required multiple shepherds to move it. But here's Jacob flexing on the shepherds, sees Rachel coming up, waits for her potentially to get close, close, and then tells the shepherds, stand back, weak shepherds. I'll remove the stone from my fair lady. But we actually said that, but it seems clear from the rest of the passage 
that he was probably thinking of me, energetically trying to flex to show off for this lady coming towards him who he is going to be smitten with. And then he does what any well-meaning young man would do who's trying to impress a girl. Look at verses 11 and 12. He kisses her and weeps aloud before introducing himself to her. Uh, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek. This is not an advisable way to try to impress a young lady or pursue a young lady to the young men here. Uh, in all seriousness, though, I don't actually think this scene is meant to be romantic uh, whatsoever. Kissing was a common form of greeting in the ancient Near East, and the fact that he's weeping, I think, is just an outpouring of the emotion that Jacob has been feeling on his journey, right? He is on the run for his life. He's fleeing to a city hundreds of miles away that he has never been to before, searching for an uncle he's never met. Having just had a powerful in the previous chapter, and as soon as he arrives, the daughter of the uncle he's searching for appears basically out of nowhere. Jacob is overwhelmed with emotion. He kisses her and weeps. He tells her that he's related to her father. She runs and tells her father, and then her father Laban runs to meet him, and Jacob returns to stay with them for a month. Things are looking up for Jacob. And yet the encouraging beginning to this passage, I think, serves to intensify the drama that ensues. Look at me at verses 15 and following. Jacob has been working for Laban for that month that he's been with him, but he's not being paid. So Laban asks him what he wants his wages to be. And in verses 16 to 18, we see there before Jacob answers, we learn that Laban has two daughters, not just Rachel, but he also has an older daughter named Leah. Moses tells us that Rachel was more attractive than Leah and that Jacob loved Rachel, I think signaling where this passage is headed, which is why in verse 18, Jacob tells Laban he wants his wages to be Rachel. I will serve you for seven years in order to marry Rachel. Now, it was customary then for prospective grooms and their families to pay a bride price, some monetary gift to the family of the woman he wanted to marry into, but Jacob has no money. He's all by his lonesome. He's on the run from his life, for, uh, run for his life from Esau, so the only thing he has to give is his own work. But even so, we see there the depth of his love for Rachel. He offers seven years of work because he loved Rachel so much. Laban is going to get seven years of free labor out of this, so obviously he agrees. And we read in verse 20, look with me there. So Jacob served for seven years, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So the seven years have passed. The time has come for Jacob to marry Rachel. In verse 21, Jacob reminds Laban that his time is up. It's been seven years and it's time for him to marry Rachel. 
And so Laban does what was customary at the time and throws a huge wedding party. You see repeated a couple different times in the passage, complete the week of marriage, complete the week of this one. There was a week of wedding, uh, wedding festivities that included feasting, eating, and drinking. Everyone together is having a good time. But after the feast was over, after Jacob almost certainly had lots to eat and drink, when it was dark, Laban brought the older daughter Leah to Jacob's tent. And they joined together in physical union. And then we come to verse 25. Look there with me. Perhaps the greatest understatement in the entire Bible, comical almost in its irony. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Like, what? This is a massive happening. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah and not Rachel. I think some people wonder how it's possible for Jacob to have slept with Leah and not known it, but I think we just need to take into account a few things. First, feasts were filled with wine. Uh, it doesn't say it, but it's almost certain Jacob had been drinking. We've seen the ill effects of wine on different characters so far in the book of Genesis, think especially of Noah and Lot. But second, they didn't have electricity. It was dark. I don't think we get that. It's not just that they didn't have electricity. It's that there's no ambient light anywhere, right? There may have been some torches or candles lit around the, the town that they were living in, but it was dark. I think that's why the, the text tells us in the evening, after it was all over, when it was very dark out, Laban brings Leah, right? It's not until morning when it's light that Jacob recognizes her. And third, I think we need to consider that women's attire would have had something to do with it. You think back to when Isaac, uh, when the servant brings Rebecca to Isaac, what does, uh, what does Rebecca do as Isaac is approaching, or as she's approaching Isaac? She pulls a veil over her face. Right? I think women's attire would have something to do with it. Women wore veils over their, space, uh, over their face, especially in a marriage ceremony. So when you combine drinking, darkness, and clothing that covers a woman's face, it makes the scene a little bit more understandable. And it's also understandable why Jacob responds the way that he does. Verse 25 what have you done to me? I served for Rachel, not Leah. You deceived me. But then look at how Laban responds. It's not our custom here to give the younger before the older. I mean, you, you, like, you, you really got to feel this comment, the full weight of it. You got to imagine Jacob is thinking, not your custom. Not your custom. You could have told me that seven years ago. Like, hey, Jacob, I just want you to know you're going to serve for seven years, but after those seven years are up, I'm actually going to give you my older daughter, Leah, instead of the younger Rachel, who you wanted to marry. You, you waited seven years to tell me this wasn't your custom? But it gets worse. Look at Laban's audacity in verse 27. I'll give you Rachel too. You'll just need to serve me for another seven years. Laban, my man, is a scoundrel, a rascal. He's a trickster, a swindler, a cheat. Another Seven years. But Jacob surprisingly agrees to the deal. Laban gives him Rachel right then. He doesn't have to wait another seven years. He gets Rachel 
Then, after the week of celebration is over, he receives Rachel in marriage, and verse 30 tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. What a story. And it's a story that teaches us a very important lesson about how God relates to his people. It teaches us that God sovereignly disciplines his children. Now, I realize that for some, talk of God disciplining his children can evoke anger, uh, anguish, anxiety, pain, sadness, sorrow, because you may have had a father who did not use their authority the way God intended it to be used. You may have had an absent father uh, or an abusive father or a father who used their authority in a self-serving and just plain wrong way. Uh, If that's you, I want you to know that I'm genuinely sorry for that. Uh, Fathers who abuse the authority God has given them lie about who God is is, and they will ultimately have to answer for the way that they have used their authority to God himself. I also want you to know, though, that God really is good. He's a good and faithful father who never uses his authority in an evil way. Instead, he disciplines, instructs, trains, and teaches his children for their good, And that's the one lesson I want us to focus on in our time from this passage. God sovereignly disciplines his children. We really can't miss God's sovereign hand guiding and directing the unfolding of events in this chapter. I mean, just think with me about what is happening in this passage. Jacob travels to Haran to search for members of his extended family. His arrival in Haran is marked by his arrival at a well. And when he comes to the well in Haran, a woman, a member of the extended family he is searching for, this needle in a haystack, arrives. Then after explaining to the woman that he's a member of her extended family, she runs and gets her father Laban, who then runs to greet him and invites him into his home. Teens, when any of the teens here, can any of you tell me where else in Genesis we have encountered a nearly identical story? Any of the teens, raise your hand if you know. Adam, where in Genesis have we already encountered it? Hannah? Goes to Haran. Yeah, so Hannah, Hannah's right. This is a nearly identical story to Genesis 24, when Abraham sends his servant to go and secure a wife for his son, Isaac. If you think back to Genesis chapter 24, the servant arrives at a well in Haran. As soon as he gets there, a woman from the family he's searching for arrives. He tells her who he is. She runs to get her brother Laban, who runs to greet the man and then invites him into his home. The nearly identical circumstances are meant to show us that just as God sovereignly led the servant to Rebekah, 
So he has sovereignly led Jacob to Rachel and to her family. But this isn't, the only, but this isn't only a story about God sovereignly leading Jacob to Rachel. It's also a story about how God sovereignly disciplines his children for their good. That's what we learn in the rest of the passage. All we have to do is look to the climax of verses 15 to 30 to see it. Right? The time for the marriage comes. Laban throws a feast. He sneakily brings Leah to Jacob. Jacob joins with her in union without knowing who it is. Morning comes. He finds not Rachel, but Leah. He finds Laban. And we're left on the edge of our seat wondering what he's going to do or say. And you got to think back. If this is actually unfolding in real time, which it did, you know Laban is just sitting at home waiting. When is that knock on my door coming? Because I know it's coming. This dude doesn't know what's coming for him, and he's going to come for me. We're sitting there on the edge of our seat waiting. What is Jacob going to do or say? And what does he say at the end of verse 25? Why have you deceived me? One wonders if when those words were coming out of Jacob's mouth, if his conscience was pricked even a little. One wonders if Jacob recalled a time seven years earlier when he deceived his father by dressing up as his brother. Genesis 27, right? When Jacob dresses up as his brother Esau in order to steal Esau's blessing from his father, at the climax of that chapter, what does Isaac say to Esau about Jacob? Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And what does Esau say about Jacob? Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has cheated me, deceived me these two times. The deceiver has been deceived. But it's not just the fact that Jacob has been deceived. That's a sign of God's sovereign discipline of Jacob. It's also how the deception went down that shows it. I mean, consider what happens here. The guy that deceived his father is deceived by a father. The guy who misrepresented himself as a sibling has a sibling misrepresented to him. The guy that did not honor the firstborn Esau must honor the firstborn, Leah. Jacob, in his deception, was playing checkers. But God, through Laban's deception, was playing 4D chess, which he always does with us, friends. These aren't coincidences. God is sovereignly disciplining Jacob. And we want to read this account with an eye towards what God wants to teach us. And what he wants to teach us is that he sovereignly and lovingly disciplines those whom he has called and chosen. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament took place as examples for us to teach us how God relates to his chosen people. And one of the things that we learn throughout Scripture is that God sovereignly disciplines his people that they might become more like him. When I use the word discipline 
here, I'm referring to the various difficulties, the various trials, and the various sufferings that God allows and uses to make his people more like Jesus. Think of what the author of Hebrews says to Christians undergoing persecution. He writes, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when corrected by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Genesis chapter 28, God received Jacob. God chose Jacob. Genesis chapter 29, God begins disciplining Jacob, shaping him, forming him. And it's the same with his people today. Those whom God has called, God disciplines, purifies, that they might become more like God himself and share in his holiness. And I think we need to recognize that there are different causes for God's discipline. That sometimes, sometimes, God disciplines us in direct response to a sin or sins that we've committed. We shouldn't be surprised that God allows the deceiver to be deceived himself. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 6? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Sometimes, I want to emphasize sometimes, sometimes in response to our sin, God allows us to taste the bitter consequences of our sin. Sometimes, if we're like Jacob, he allows a Laban to enter into our life. Whether in the form of a person like Laban, or in the form of a difficult consequence of our sin. So while we don't often talk about it, if we are experiencing difficult trials, Scripture does give us a reason to at least ask the question, is there some obvious way that I have sinned that God might be disciplining me for? Is there some obvious sin in my life that I need to repent of? But I want you to listen carefully. Please hear me say this clearly. I am using the phrase some obvious way for a reason. Jacob's deception was obvious. And God was responding to his obvious sin with obvious discipline. What a loving thing to do. Don't walk out into that road. A bus is coming. You're going to get hit. I'm pulling you back. He makes clear his discipline. I want you to consider looking at your life and thinking, are there any obvious sins in my life? Am I obviously sinning by looking at explicit things that I shouldn't be looking at? Am I obviously sinning by stealing or cheating at work? Am I obviously sinning by angrily yelling at my spouse and kids? The list of obvious sins could go on and on, right? But I want you to ask at least the question. But again, I don't mean for you to look at the difficult things you're experiencing And hear me saying, your sin 
is the reason they're happening. Often they're not. More often, I think they're not. Think of Job, the most righteous man in the world at the time, and yet God disciplined Job to purify him of indwelling sin and to make him more and more like himself. And so it is with us. He allows us to experience various difficulties with the aim and end that we become more like Jesus. Difficulties like financial loss or problems, personal relationships breaking down, internal, unexplainable, emotional turmoil that just doesn't seem to go away, an impossible boss or coworker, illness and sickness, persecution and opposition for your faith. All these and more God allows for the express purpose of purifying us as a silversmith purifies silver. And the reality is when these things are occurring to us, God is usually simply answering our prayers when he disciplines us. If you've ever prayed for God to make you more like Jesus, if you've ever prayed for God to grow you in holiness, if you've ever prayed to grow in the fruits of the Spirit, you have essentially prayed, God, discipline me, teach me, train me. Bring me through hardship. And the reason I say that is because it's through hardship that holiness is truly taught. Holiness is learned in the school of hard knocks. Jesus didn't just sit on a mountain and say to his disciples, be holy for I am holy. He didn't just say, cut off your right hand. He didn't just say, this is the, these are the different aspects of systematic theology that I want you to be concerned with. He said, follow me. And as you follow me, you will suffer like me. You will carry the cross like me. You will die to yourself like me. Yet in the process, God is making you more like me. God allows hardships into our life for the purpose of training us and teaching us holiness. Right? Some of you may be familiar with CrossFit. It's a fitness regimen that emphasizes being skilled in as many possible domains uh, as you can be. So things like domains like gymnastics and Olympic weightlifting and cardiovascular endurance and body weight skills and things like that. You, you name it in the realm of fitness and they are taught to do it. And each year they have a competition to see who the fittest individual is. They take them through a ridiculously rigorous set of events over the course of three to four days that, that test them in every domain imaginable. And the ones who finish at the top all say the same thing. The only reason they made it to the top is because they faced and addressed their weaknesses. To become the best, they have to find what they're weak at and just hammer it until they are better at that particular skill. That's what God does to us when he disciplines us. We may not like it, but the fact is he confronts us in our weakness. He sees it in us, temptations to particular sins, ways that we can grow to be more like Jesus. And instead of avoiding the weakness, which will only cause us to eventually trip up in the future, he says, my son, my daughter, I'm gonna come in and we're gonna face this thing head on. 
and we're gonna address this sin, this temptation, this struggle. You may not like it in the moment. CrossFit athletes certainly don't like it in the moment. It's painful. But in the end, there is a harvest of righteousness for those who are disciplined by me. And we always need to remember that ultimately God's discipline is an expression of his love for us, his commitment to us. We can't read Genesis 29 in isolation from Genesis 28. I will be with you. Even in the midst of the discipline, even in the midst of the fires, you are going to be tempted to think that I have abandoned you and that I don't like you or that I'm opposed to you because I'm allowing this hardship to occur to you, but I will be with you. The relationship with God begins, I will be with you. Praise God. Oftentimes, new believers, I found this in my own life, and it can often be the case with new believers, they are wowed and amazed by God's love for them. There sometimes is a honeymoon period where it's just like, all is just you know rainbows and unicorns and wonderful stuff. And I love the Lord and he's been so, so amazing to me, the mercy that he's shown me. And just life, is just everything seems to be falling into place. And wow, but then the honeymoon period ends. And all of a sudden, hard stuff starts happening. And then more hard stuff and, and more hard stuff. And you're like, what, what is going on here? But that actually is an expression of God's love to you. He uses difficulty, trials, suffering to make us more like Christ. He sovereignly allows and uses the things that are happening in our life to purify us and bring about the best possible end for us, which is Christ-likeness. And as difficult as it can be to understand at times, we have to see and remember that through it all, God is carefully personally with us and using the circumstances we're experiencing for our greatest good. There's a story I heard another pastor share that I think expresses this point well. Uh, There's a young boy in New England. He had a father who was a grammarian and who was a professor at a New England college. The boy wanted to follow, follow in his father's footsteps, and so he went to a New England college. But not just any New England college, He went to the New England College. He went to Harvard, right? And this is, if you went to Harvard, this isn't about Harvard. Uh, School starts and a few months pass. Uh, And after having a few calls with his son, the father realizes, my son has changed. Uh, He began hearing a more affected Boston accent. Uh, His son no longer wanted to talk about sports. He just wanted to talk about foreign policy and argue about the nation's policies. He developed what the father identified as an air of supremacy. And the father became concerned that Harvard was changing him, but not building him. So the son came home for the holidays. The father went to pick him up at the train station. When the son got off the train, the father saw that he had adopted the fashions of the intelligentsia. He was smoking a pipe, his 18-year-old son. And this dad, this old wise professor, brings his son home. The son on the way home, 18 years old, talked ad nauseum about politics and foreign policy, pontificated about things he really knew nothing about. And when they got home, the father broke out a box of cigars. He said, son, you like that pipe? 
you might like these cigars more. His son looked at the cigar, and he saw that it was a $5 cigar. At the time, one of the best cigars you could get. And he took the cigar, and he bit the end off. And he said, Dad, did you notice? Did you notice how the end just popped off? That's the mark of a good cigar. That means it's been properly rolled. Then he broke out the lighter, and he began lighting it. And he said, did did you notice how it didn't light right away? That means it's been properly soaked. A A good cigar lights slowly. Then he began puffing on the cigar, and he said, Dad, did you notice how the ash hangs on the end of the cigar? If I have any cigar smokers in here, what's that called? I don't, I don't mean to call you out, but what is it called when the ash builds up on the end of a cigar? What is it? Stacking dimes. There you go. He, he, he says that's the stacking of dimes. That means it's been rolled tightly. That's the sign of quality. And the dad said, those are pretty good observations, seeing how it's actually a 25-cent cigar. The son says, what do you, what do you mean? It says right here on the wrapper, it's a $5 cigar. And the father says, I know. I unwrapped and rewrapped all of them. You're smoking a 25-cent cigar in a $5 wrapper. Then the father sat back, grammarian and social historian that he was, fully, tr- truly full of wisdom, and said, you know, in Rome, societal lines were drawn very clearly. You had the emperor, you had the senators and politicians, you had the praetorian guard, the wealthy, the craftsmen, and at the bottom you had the common laborers that were of no nobility, and they had a title for that group. They were called sine nobilis, without nobility. And every once in a while, the father said, one of sine nobilis would flaunt himself with those of nobility as if he truly was of nobility, and when that happens, those of nobility would change that person's title from sin nobilis to sin nob. That's where our term snob comes from, the father said to the son. The term snob is for a man who has a shell but no real substance, kind of like this cigar. And when the boy was older, he later reflected on this experience And he said that the lesson his father taught him that day pierced his heart like a sword. He saw that greatness wasn't something you wear or smoke. It's something you are. But I want you to hear this. The thing it did most, he said, was it showed me an attribute of my father I never knew. He said, I didn't think my father was mad at me or angry at me. Disappointed, maybe, but not angry. All I could think about was my little wizened father hunched over a box of cigars, methodically unwrapping and rewrapping and sealing each cigar just to teach his son that he had a $5 shell with a 25-cent heart. The pastor then said, I read this story of Jacob, and you know what we should think? It's not that God God is mad or angry or bitter. It's the truly startling reality that the God who made the heavens and the earth hunkered down over Jacob and spent two decades, two decades, teaching him that loving and gracious though God is, he will not let sin 
abide in the heart of his children. He hunkers down over each one of us and as it were, carefully unwraps and rewraps the experiences of life in order to teach us that he cares for us. He will go to great lengths to order the circumstances of our life to make us more like Jesus. That's how much God loves his children. So when we're in the midst of difficulty, when we're experiencing the Lord's discipline, how should we respond? I think there's a few ways that we should think about responding as we close. First, if you're experiencing difficulty, trials, suffering, don't disregard them. Don't disregard them. The author of Hebrews says, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The person who regards lightly the discipline of the Lord pays no attention to it. Uh, avoids acknowledging it, puts on a happy face, tries to shake it off as though, some, as though nothing were happening uh, to them. But times of trial and suffering and difficulty are opportunities for us to reflect on our relationship with God and how it is that he might be caring for us through the midst of that difficulty, for considering God's work in our lives and why he may be allowing that particular struggle. If you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I wonder if you've considered what God may be doing in your trials. As C.S. Lewis once famously said that pain, suffering, trials were God's megaphone to get our attention, to teach us that everything isn't right in our relationship with him. I mean, the, the reason that pain, sorrow, trials, and difficulty exist in the first place is because we've sinned against God. And because we've sown sin, we've reaped the consequences of sin, which are death and judgment. Painful though many trials are, God graciously allows them that you might look to him in repentance and put your faith in Jesus, who paid the ultimate price for sin by dying on the cross, bearing the punishment for all who would believe in him. So if you're experiencing difficulty today and you're not a follower of Jesus, don't disregard what God may be doing through your difficulty. Consider what he may be teaching you. If you have questions about that, come find me after the service. I would love to talk with you about it. And the second thing that I want us to focus on as we close is as we experience discipline from the Lord, these times of trials, don't grow weary of God's discipline. The author of Hebrews says, don't grow weary when corrected by God. Now, the reason that we shouldn't grow weary is because the longer and longer you live in this life, especially as a Christian, you, you begin to understand, wow, the trials really do just start stacking up. And the balance of life becomes more trials, more sorrow, more sadness the longer that you live, it seems like. I, I don't know about you, but I can look at the past five years of my life and it's like, I know that good things have happened. I know lots of good things have happened. But man, I have a really long list of the difficulties and trials we've experienced as a family. And I think that's what life is like. And I think the author of Hebrews is encouraging the Christians, don't grow weary. Think even of Jacob. God spent decades working in him, working in him. And we don't want to grow weary of the Lord's discipline and think that the Lord is turning against us or that he's angry at us. 
in the midst of that long workout, as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, in the midst of God's gymnasium, God is putting us through our paces, but there is a harvest of righteousness coming. Friend, don't grow weary in the difficulties and trials you're experiencing. There is a glorious end coming. We're almost home. We are almost home. And when it comes to the greatest trial that any of us will face, as we come to the edge of the swollen waters, as Jonathan read from uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress earlier, we will come to the trial of death, the, the seemingly greatest trial that nobody overcomes. But we don't need to grow weary even in the face of death because the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And if the spirit of the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in us, will he not also cause us to rise from the dead? Certainly he will. Just as God kept Jacob and was with Jacob through the remainder of his life and in the resurrection will bring Jacob into the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more deception in his own heart or no more labans around him, so he will do the same for us. Don't Grow weary, friends, of the Lord's discipline. God disciplines those he loves. God is bringing us to be with him. God is making us more like Christ. That work will occur for the rest of our days on this life and on this earth, but rest assured in the promise that God gives to his people, he will complete the work he began in you. He will complete it. And one day, that discipline and those trials, and that difficulty, and that suffering will give way to glory. And then we will stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, who loved us, who died for us, sinners condemned unclean in order to make us his own bride. We look forward to that day with confidence, and we want to encourage one another today. Don't grow weary. Don't disregard the Lord's discipline. Keep going, friends. The end is almost here. We're almost home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the midst of discipline and difficulty and trials that we would reflect on Jesus Christ, that we would consider him who died in our place, who rose in power from the dead, and who gives the assurance of everlasting life to all who trust in him. We pray that in the midst of the discipline that we may be facing, that you would cause us to not disregard it, to not treat it lightly, and to not grow weary in well-doing. Fill us with your spirit. Hold us fast until you bring us home once and for all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.